All of a sudden, the, uh, the hymn that has the lyric in it, it is, what is it, Sweet to Behold, a newborn babe in your arms. Did y'all hear the newborn cry out right at this perfect moment? Almost as if to say, not really. <laughs> not when I'm screaming. Um, let me uh, take just a moment and commit this time of hearing the Word, preaching the Word, to the Lord and ask Him to show up in power. Let's pray. Father, I come to You as Your servant, and I ask that You would use the teaching of Your Word to instruct Your people. And Father, if there would be those here outside of faith, You would do a work in their heart even now. Father, I pray that You'd forgive me I am a sinner in need of grace. I pray that your spirit would work here and now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I've entitled today's sermon, How the Father Receives Glory Through the Son's Death. I'm going to start with an illustration of... uh, John and Betty Scott Stam. They were missionary martyrs to communist China, and they died on December 8th, 1934. I think you have 35 on the screen, but I'm pretty confident it is actually 34. Um, I, I gave him that, so it's not their fault. In November 1934... John and Betty moved to their mission station to the Anhu province. They had a three-month-old daughter named Helen. On December 6th at 9.30, they received a message that the communists were within four miles of the city. After John confirmed this, The Stams prepared to leave in a hurry. However, the communists quickly overran the city. They came to where the Stams were staying, and they broke open the gates to the compound. They demanded all the money the Stams had, and it was handed over. The communists then arrested John and took him to the city prison. They left Betty Betty Scott and the baby Helen. The soldiers later came back and grabbed Betty and Helen, and they were taken to the prison where John was. It was still the morning of December 6th. That night, John Stam wrote a letter to the China Inland Mission authorities, but it was never delivered. The letter was found later bundled up in some of Helen's clothes. It stated that the Stams were being held by the communists for a ransom of $20,000. John Stam also wrote to the mission authorities of how he and his wife had been captured. And in that letter he wrote, Philippians 1.20, May Christ be glorified whether by life or by death. John, Betty, and Helen 
were then taken to another local prison where some of the prisoners were released to make room for the stams. In the midst of the hustle and bustle, Helen, only three months old, began to cry. And a soldier suggested that they kill her since she was bothering them. Then one of the prisoners who had just been released asked why they should kill an innocent baby. The soldiers turned to him and asked if he was willing to die for the foreign baby. The man was hacked to pieces in front of the stams. Helen was allowed to live. The next morning, the stams were forced to march 12 miles west with the soldiers to the town of Mushu. The group stopped for a night, and Betty was allowed to tend to her baby, Helen. But in fact, as any good mother would, she hid her daughter in the room inside of a sleeping bag. The very next day, John and Betty were marched down the streets of Mushu to meet their deaths. Curious onlookers lined both sides of the streets. A Chinese shopkeeper stepped out of the crowd to talk to the communists. Trying to persuade them not to kill the stams, the soldiers, the soldiers ordered the man back into the crowd. But he wouldn't step back. The soldiers then invaded his house where they found a Chinese copy of the Bible and a hymn book. He was led alongside the stams to be executed for being a Christian. After marching for a short while longer, John Stam was ordered to kneel, and it was then that he was beheaded in front of his wife and child. His wife and the shopkeeper were killed only moments later. Excuse me, the baby was not there. The baby Helen was found two days later by a Chinese pastor who took her home and took care of her. The Reverend Loki Chow and his wife then took the baby girl to her maternal grandparents, the Reverend Charles Ernest Scott and his wife Clara, who were also missionaries in China. The Stam's daughter later came to the United States, was raised by her aunt and uncle George and Helen Mayhee. As for Helen's parents, a small group of Christians found their bodies buried them on a hillside. The Stam's gravesides read like this even today. John Cornelius Stam, Philippians 1.20, that Christ may be glorified whether by life or by death. Elizabeth Scott Stam, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Philippians 1, 21. God receives glory through the death of his martyrs because it speaks of his infinite worth. When we surrender our comfort and our desires it tells the world there is more. It tells the world there is more. 
God often calls us into hard circumstances in this life. And if you don't believe that, just keep living. The Stams experienced this, and so did Jesus in our text today. I want you to look with me at John 12, 27. And I want you to see what Jesus is experiencing in his soul. In John 12, 27, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He acknowledges, Jesus does, the struggle. And he's asking for help. But then immediately he reminds himself, no, this is the reason that I came, to redeem my people. But in this, you see the human side of Christ is struggling with the looming thoughts of separation, not just pain and death, but also separation from God the Father. He has been with him all eternity, and now there will be a moment of separation, and his soul is troubled. However, Jesus is resolute. He immediately acknowledges that this is why he came to the earth. Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. It is mystery upon Trinitarian mystery here. You see both sides of Christ in the same text. The humanity of Christ and yet the divinity, the godness of Christ. And so he says his soul is troubled. It's interesting because it's a parallel text in John, I mean, excuse me, Luke 22, 42. Very similar situation, but at this point, Jesus is already in the garden. And I want you to hear what Jesus says in Luke twenty two forty two. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is praying that the Father perhaps would find another way to do the redemptive work that he was called to do in this life. And here's the question I have for you, just to think about it with me. Was it not the will of Jesus that he die for sinners on a Roman cross? Because he says, not my will, but yours. So is Jesus saying it really wasn't his will? Now, I for one am glad to see that he surrenders to the Father. And he says, but your will be done. But the question is, is Jesus on board with the plan? It certainly sounds like maybe in the text, the Father is twisting the son's arm to go to the cross. 
Not my will, but your will be done. He is certainly not gleefully skipping to the cross like a schoolgirl with her best friend's hand, hand in hand. That's not happening in the text. Jesus is in human form, truly man, truly God. He is about to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane due to the stress and the agony awaiting him. It is not a sin to ask the Father to try this another way, but rather it's human nature to avoid pain, if at all possible. The important piece here is Jesus' willingness, his willingness to walk into the storm of pain for the sake of obeying the Father. Ultimately, Jesus' sacrifice would bring the Father much glory. You know why? Because he sacrificed the most precious thing, his very life. He laid down his life for the Father's glory and that we might have an opportunity to enter into a relationship with him. What does this tell us about ourselves? When we struggle, when we fight through our pain and our sickness, when we battle through tough life circumstances, you know what we want to do? This is what I want to do in my flesh. What gives? I don't get this. I, uh, I'm trying to serve you. I'm a pastor. I read your Bible. I pray. Why do I have to go through this? But you know what the Lord is asking me to do? And he's asking you, not my will, but yours. I surrender. I surrender. I want your will more than I want my will. And if it means I need to bear up underneath this suffering, at least I have this. You've promised me you'll never leave me or forsake me. You'll be in it with me. And so I'm going to surrender and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to hope that you are good like your word says and that you're a loving father like your word says. And I'm going to continue to trust and surrender and hope. And Jesus was the perfect model for this. Not my will, but your will. Now, look with me at something that's pretty curious. John 12, 28. Jesus says this. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Why does Jesus want the Father to glorify his name? There's a lot in the Bible about God getting glory. In fact, it's all over the Bible. Matter of fact, it's so all over the Bible that it can begin to feel like God is a glory hound. 
looking for lightning, aren't you? That he's an egomaniac. Why is it right that God receives glory? And that Jesus tells him to glorify his name. If I told you, hey, Billy Bob, glorify my name, you would go, you're a narcissist. You're an egomaniac. But yet, that's what Jesus just did with the Father. Glorify your name. And the Father says what? I have glorified my name, and I will glorify my name. First, I find our century is far too dense with man and distant from the sweet sovereignty of God. In other words, we're really concerned about men. We're not so concerned about God. Last week, I shared a quote by Henry Scoggle. The quote was this. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. So it is with God. The worth and excellency of God's soul is measured by what he loves. Because he is God... It would be unrighteous for him to love anything above himself. Does that make sense? He must love himself. He is the only thing in the universe that is worthy. And so, is not the essence of righteousness to place supreme value on what is supremely valuable with all the just actions that follow that. Let me say that again. Is it not the essence of righteousness to place supreme value on what is supremely valuable? That's righteousness. To value what is truly valuable. You know what unrighteousness is? To set our highest affections, you and me, on things that are of little or no worth. That's unrighteousness. We should value what is most valuable. But what do we do? We place our affections and we find our happiness in mostly things that aren't of supreme value. And that is unrighteousness. Thus, the righteousness of God is the infinite zeal and joy and pleasure that he has in what is supremely valuable, namely himself. And so Jesus says, Father, glorify yourself. Why? Because you're the most valuable thing in the world. And if you don't glorify yourself and show yourself that value, how can they even find life? Because you are of supreme value. And if he ever were to act contrary to this eternal passion for his own perfections, then he would be unrighteous. 
In other words, if God didn't show his glory, if God didn't say, glorify me, he would be a sinner, unrighteous, because he is of supreme value. He is the most valuable in all the world. And so the son knows it and he says, glorify yourself. It's our only hope. God must be first and foremost happy in being God. He must make his glory the highest goal so that the truth and righteousness are spread throughout his creation. Sometimes I say it like this and I think about it like this. God did not create you or me out of some need So you think about, you got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're in eternity, and they're like, golly, it's getting boring up here. What are we going to do with ourselves for the next forever? And one of them goes, I know, I got an idea. Let's create something called man. And we can kind of watch them run around and watch histories rise and fall and kings rise and fall. That'll be fun. No, no. You know what happened? In the Trinity, fullness has a propensity to overflow. They were so full in themselves that creation just kind of happened. There's this fullness in them. They didn't need us. But they shared themselves with us out of fullness. And so it's important to realize that God, he's not up there bored. He's not up there frustrated. His plans are not frustrated by this world or our sin. When we join him, those of us who know him, when we join him in heaven, it wouldn't be much of a heaven if he was a grumpy old man who didn't get his way with his creation and he felt frustrated like Mr. Potter in The Wonderful Life. No. God is complete in and of himself. He's happy in and of himself. He doesn't have need. And that is why in Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, listen to how God says it. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for whose sake? For you? For me? No. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You know why he will not give his glory to another? Because you're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. And in the end, it would be sinful and destructive. So, why does the Father say he has glorified it and he will glorify it again? He glorified it first through the life and ministry of his son, Jesus. 
And he will glorify it again, which is coming in our text, through the death of his son. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Look at John 12, 29 through 30. The crowd stood that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, the Father and the Son allowed all of them to hear the Father basically saying, this is my Son again, whom I'm well pleased. And it ensures them it's not a Father's punishment when Jesus gets killed. It's not the punishment because he is affirmed in him. And so, John 12, 31 through 33, it says, Jesus says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show them by what kind of death he was going to die. So, title of the sermon, How God Will Be Glorified by Christ's Death. There is essentially three things that Jesus says. The judgment of the world. God will be glorified through the judgment of the world. And when we talk about the judgment of the world, often the Bible's talking about evil and systematic evil, the systems of the world, and how men and those systems have rebelled against God, and ultimately they will be judged. And now it is coming to the time where Jesus will go to the cross and he will be ascended into heaven. And ultimately, that nails the coffin shut on God will judge this world. And that's what Jesus is saying. And the Father will be glorified through that judgment. And then he says, the second one, the ruler, or Satan, will be cast out. So, if you think about it, at this point in the ballgame, in Christianity, if you think about the whole world, the whole world, there has been this little bitty beacon of light and of people, the Jewish people over in the Middle East, one little bitty light, it's like a little flashlight, and the rest of the world has been dark. Almost no one but the Jews know of the Messiah at the point that this is in history. Almost no one. But when Jesus is crucified and when he is resurrected, the light will go to the Gentiles. It'll go all over the world. And that was the original plan. And so Jesus is saying and the Father is saying, I will be glorified through your death. Because when you die... I'm going to draw all men to myself. And that's the third part. I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to cast out the power, Satan, and the enemy 
In other words, he won't have the power that he has been having, the power that has held it to just this few little people over in the Middle East. I'm going to take that power away, and I'm going to allow light to go all over the world to the Gentiles. And people from all tongues, tribes, and nations are going to come when when Christ is lifted up. But as is the case, maybe even for you sitting here, the crowd doesn't understand. The crowd doesn't get it. Look at John 12, 34 through 36. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And then get their question right here. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And then they say, who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, think about that. While you have the light, who is the light? It's Jesus. And he's saying, I'm not going to walk with you much longer. While you have the light, walk in it. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus tells them, the light is among you for a little while longer. In other words, he's saying, there is a time limitation here. You don't have forever. There is this time restraint. Walk in the light while you have the light. Jesus is saying, my time here on earth is short. He's the light. Some of us may feel like we have intellectual questions, problems to faith in Christ. These people said, that's what they were saying. As I've got an intellectual question, they said, you know, Jesus is supposed to be here forever. You know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't answer their intellectual question. Jesus is saying, and this is really what he said, I think, you have enough light. Respond to the light that you have. You don't have to have all your intellectual questions answered. You have enough light. Respond to the light that you have. The answer to their question, which was, Their intellectual question was, Christ remains forever, so how could he be lifted up? That's the Jews' question. He doesn't even go there. The answer, we know, is the resurrection. And we also know that the Old Testament said that he'd have to be murdered. In Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, they knew that stuff. They just weren't trying hard enough to remember it because they wanted to object to the reality of Christ. So Jesus says, you got enough light. Respond to the light you have. There's a time restraint here. Lest darkness overtake you. There's a danger of losing the opportunity. 
This happened to the nation of Israel. God continued to reveal himself, continued to reveal himself, continued to reveal himself, and what did they do? They hardened their heart. They hardened their heart. They hardened their heart. And finally, he turns them over to that. Same thing is true with Pharaoh. The question I have is, they had the light. They had Jesus. Do we, do we have light? I mean, they had the actual Emmanuel, God with them. But do we have light? My answer to the question is, in this generation, we actually have more light. We have the resurrection of Jesus. We have the completion of the Bible, the canon, all the books. We have the testimony of godly men and women throughout 2,000 centuries of church history. We have light. We have the blood of the martyrs willing to die for their faith in Christ to help others see him. I think about John, John and Betty Scott Stamm. We have their testimonies, along with hundreds of thousands of others who said with their lives, this is real. This is real. He is real. And, and if you just stop and think about it for a moment, I have unbelieving friends. I have unbelieving family members. And sometimes they look at me like I'm goofy for believing what I believe. But I want you to think about it like this. What man, what man would have written this particular story? And what I mean by that is God is going to come down from his throne in heaven and he's going to be a servant to all. Matter of fact, he's going to be such a servant that he's going to let his creation murder him on a Roman cross that he might bring the opportunity for people to know him and have a right relationship with him. You know how men would have written this story? This is how I think men would have written the story. He's going to come down. And he is going to kick butt and take names. And he's going to show people he's God. And you're going to get in line or you're going to go to hell because he's God. And he can do that. But you know what we see in the scriptures? A servant. A broken, willing to be broken man for his creation willing to be spit on, willing to wash feet. No man writes that story. No man writes that story. It has a ring of truth. And so, we are called to respond to the light. And I'm going to close with this story. Probably... 15 years ago now, I think. I was at home. My wife and I and the children lived in Statesboro, Georgia at that time. And the phone rang. One of my closest friends 
was on the other line. His name's Tony. Tony said, I need you to come to Columbus. I said, I can hear in your voice something's not good. He said, Clint, I, I came back to Columbus this weekend because I wanted to try to share the gospel one more time with my father. And on Saturday, he was out back blowing leaves, and I had gone to Home Depot to get something for the yard for him. And when I got back, I went into the backyard, and he was laying face down. When I rolled him over, his face was already purple, and I knew he was probably gone. I tried to do CPR for till the amulets got there, but it was too late. And uh, so I drove to Columbus, and we did the funeral together. And we cried, and we prayed, and we talked. And Tony, before I left, he said, Clint, you got to promise me something. And I said, anything. He said, when you go home, he knew my father wasn't a Christian. He said, when you go home, will you promise me that you'll, you'll call your dad, and you'll get together with him, and you'll tell him the gospel again? And I said, uh, you know, yes, I will do that. So I got home, and I called my father. He was in Atlanta. I was in Statesboro. I said, Dad, I'd like to meet with you. Can we meet halfway? I'll, I'd like to buy you lunch and have a conversation. And so we met halfway, and I uh, bought his lunch, maybe the first time I ever bought my father's lunch. And uh, I started out by saying, you know, Dad, you were the best dad in the world. I could not have asked for a better father. And I meant that. I meant that. We had a, a fantastic relationship. And I knew he loved me, and I knew he would do anything in the world for me. And I told him that. And I said, if, I'm, if I ever amount to anything, it's because of your goodness and your leadership and your fatherhood in my life. But I said, because I love you so much, Dad, I got to take a chance. And I got to tell you one more time about the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And I just want you to listen. And you can ask questions, but I'd like for you to just listen. And I shared with him God's plan of salvation all the way through. And he was warm for the very first time. He had often been very skeptical. And when I got through, he said this. He said, you know, son, you've got exposed to this in college. I've never really been that exposed to it, and so I just don't know what to believe. And we left that day, and that was kind of where he left it. It was probably two and a half years later. He checked himself into an ER. Um, I'm pretty sure it was lung cancer within nine days. He died. I watched him those last nine days. I slept beside him. And I couldn't help but think the whole time, God has given him enough light. He has enough light. He understands the gospel. Why does he think he needs more light? 
And when he did pass, I think I learned that there is a, perhaps in eternity, a hidden line. And J.A. Alexander, a pastor from the 1800s, wrote a poem called The Hidden Line. And this is the first stanza in that poem. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and God's wrath. Luke 12, the guy thought he had forever, and he says, you fool, your very life is demanded of you this night. There is no guarantees. Respond to the light that you have. It's enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glory of the truth of the gospel. I pray for some of us here, today could be the day of salvation, that we would trust you, we would respond to the light that we have. And then, Father, for others of us, maybe we're seeing your glory in a new way. I pray that we would respond to that glory, that we would be willing to forsake all, to make much of you. You are worthy of our praise. I pray all this in Jesus' name.